This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Welcome. This is Ramdev Dale Borglum at the Healing at the Edge channel of the Be Here Now podcast network. Today, I'm with my dear friend, Chris Britt, who has been in a group with me, and we become friends. Uh, good morning, Christopher. Hi. Good morning, Dale. So, Dale, let's give everyone a little sense of how we know each other, uh, who you are, who I am, and let that color the conversation that we have to come and the topic of today is inspiration in the broadest sense. Uh, I asked you if you would do this podcast with me because you're a person who uh, inspires me and has led me to other inspiring people, places, and things. So, Dale, do you remember how we met each other? Vaguely, uh, I had a group here in Marin at uh, Travis's office that you started coming to. Right. And maybe I met you before you came to the group. You could remind me. Yeah, exactly. We met, we met, uh, that was pretty much when we started regularly meeting. I went to your Healing at the Edge two or three day workshop in San Francisco. And then I went regularly, at least for perhaps a year, to the, a Wednesday night meditation group with you in, in Mill Valley. Maybe you could say a little bit about inspiration. Sure. I've had a funny relationship with the idea of inspiration. I don't, it's something that's important to me because I feel like as a writer and as a performer, my best work comes through me and not as a direct result of my logical thinking or my craft. I, I do study craft, I do study how to write, I do study how to perform magic, how to act. Those things seem to capture what I consider to be inspiration. And my first re uh, recollection of inspiration was when I was about 12, 14 years old, I was sharing a room with my brother Doug, and I had... I took off my socks, and it must have been the summer, because I took off my socks, and one of my socks stayed in the shape of my foot. <laughs> Sounds like a teenage kid, right? And I thought this was so special. And in some ways, I was making a joke about it, and I said, this must be a special sock. This is my inspiration. And I hung it from my, from my uh, bed as a, as a source of inspiration, because at the time, I was creating... Uh, a lot of magic tricks and felt particularly inspired and I was it was a point of a heightened creativity for me so since then I have other ideas about what inspiration is and uh, so I yeah. become your sock I've replaced <laughs> your sock is that what this, this is where we're going here? we can edit that out I met you at a time when I was looking how to deal with my fear of death and I didn't have any immediate immediate illness or anything to 
to prompt that, but I had a lot of fear around death. It was something that kind of came into my mind. And so I saw you had this course called, you know, Healing at the Edge for, seemed like it's for practitioners. Could you just describe what that course is to people? Well, it takes different forms, or maybe it has one form, but uh, I present it to different audiences. And basically, it's a training program, which is a non-religious, non-denominational exploration of how the spiritual path can be made very practical and particularly applied to difficult situations such as grieving, caring for someone who's dying, dying yourself, being a healthcare practitioner. But it's also really useful and available to people in the, in the general public. I myself have spent a lot of time working with dying people over the years, as you know. I do that not because I feel like a particularly saintly person or I'm even particularly interested in dying but I want to wake up. And in Buddhism, even before we begin the awakening process, there's the stage of motivation, which in a way is very similar, I think, to what you're calling inspiration. Hmm. And without deep inspiration or without motivation, the spiritual path is often something that most people would shy away from or avoid because it involves looking at and being with in a very intimate way the places that we've been trying to avoid all of our lives. In fact, the places that we've created a personality structure perfectly designed to avoid those places. Mm. When I'm around dying people or when I train other people to be around dying people or to be with their own fear, it really at least initially depends on inspiration and motivation. That, In fact, one of the motivating truths that gets people to practice is you're going to die, but you don't know when. What could be more obvious intellectually than that? <laughs> but if we really, really knew that, if you and I knew that as we're sitting across from each other right now in my living room, right. and that we might never see each other after you walk out the door in 45 minutes or an hour or whatever it's going to be, how would that affect the way right now we're looking to each other's eyes? How would it affect the way words came out of our mouths, how would it affect the way people are listening to the words on this recording if nobody knew they were going to be alive at the end of the recording, that this moment is the precious moment. This is the moment in which we can awaken. I'm thinking about that right now because I have plans. <laughs> this is, we're recording this, we may release this later, and yet right here, you and I, in my mind, in my life, this could be, like you said, a last moment seeing each other. It could be a last, one of the last moments of our lives. How do we keep in balance, you know, the planning mind, the objective mind, and also the, the open heart and the open and the human part of this? Could you tell me a little bit about when you said motivation and inspiration? What are the things uh, beyond the idea and the knowledge that we're going to die that are inspirational triggers or motivations. What in Buddhism or even in your own experience, could you talk a little bit more about the motivators? I think for a very large percentage of people, the great motivator is I don't want to suffer so much as I'm suffering right now. I have an, a PhD in mathematical statistics from Stanford. I went to Berkeley before that. I spent 10 years studying mathematics. Even though I was good at that, it locked my mind in in a certain way that one could say really created a certain kind of suffering. I had certain childhood traumas. I had very loving parents, but I had certain accidents when I was a little kid that caused trauma. So that as I grew up, I had created a personality structure uh, that was largely designed to go into my mind, try to solve the problem of my life, that my life was one big self-improvement project or one big project to avoid suffering. Mm. I wasn't very good at it in the beginning. This was back in the late 1960s. 
Eastern wisdom was just beginning to come to the West. I had the great good fortune or guru's grace or blessing or whatever you might want to call it that my across-the-street neighbor was a really dear friend of Ramdas's. So when Ramdas would come to Northern California, he would stay at Joel's house. <laughs> and Ramdas and I became drinking buddies when I was a graduate student. He was older than me, older in age, but older in his practice. He had gone to India. He had met Maharaji. He had studied yoga with Haridas Baba. And he had a wonderful gift to be able to talk about Eastern wisdom, Hinduism, Buddhism, Western wisdom, psychology, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, in ways that it all fit together and was simple enough and practical enough that Western people could say, aha, there's the answer for me to be able to not suffer as much as I'm suffering right now. Of course, in the beginning, there's a bit of a honeymoon period. You think, this is it. All I've got to do is do a little yoga and do some meditating, and I'm going to be a happy guy. And it turns out that for me and for, I think, a lot of people, it isn't quite so simple that the samskaras or the contractions, the places where we grasp, are very deeply conditioned and embedded. My first guru, Bob Dylan, said, what price do we have to pay to get out of going all these things twice? <laughs> Which is a very good question. Uh, it seems like I've gone through the same things again and again and again. And maybe the price is being fully present, not just pretty much present, but being fully there with awareness, with compassion, with an understanding that even these, quote, obstacles, unquote, are part of God's grace, part of an exact pointing at what we need to use as inspiration to awaken. So Ramdas was, in a way, my first inspiration to get out of this place I was at. I felt like I was kind of on the wrong planet, you know, that I I was a scientist, I was on the career track, I was in Silicon Valley just as the computer industry was starting. I was one of the first computer programmers in the world. Wow, didn't know that. If I would have stayed there, I'd probably have X million dollars. And here we sit in my nice little living room. And I'm really glad that I didn't get caught there. I'm really glad that I was able to follow my heart's desire and listen to what Ramdas was saying. And then eventually, after I got my PhD, follow him to India on his second trip to India, where I, I did a lot of Buddhist meditating with Munindraji and Goenka. And then, but mainly, I met Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji, who is my guru. And even saying, is my guru, is a statement that makes me just slightly uncomfortable, because I think when people hear that, some people are jealous and other people are a bit put off. Maharaji, to me, is not that guy in the picture over there on the wall. He's not a memory of experiences I had in India so much as he is, even though he has left his body in 1973, 45 years ago, hard to believe, he is a living representation of a certain state of consciousness that is also manifest by other beings, Christ, Buddha, and we can name other names, but let's not go down the list. But just one last thing. I know you're wanting to jump in here. I can feel it. <laughs> okay. That, that being around somebody who is awake in that way, who is loving me not because I'm nice or useful or helpful or good, but is loving because he's love is the greatest inspiration I've ever had and the greatest inspiration anybody could have. My sense is that that inspiration doesn't depend on you or the listener or anybody going to India or even sitting at the feet of a man or a woman who has that degree of realization. But that that sense of the guru, that sense of that level of consciousness, if you're yearning, if your motivation is strong enough, that then that teaching 
will appear in your life. Uh, would you say his presence was the source of inspiration or was his action or teaching? And do you have any, uh, not that we have to rate what is the most important thing you learned from him or, or was it, for example, just his presence that, that unlocked something in you that you didn't, an experience of your own consciousness that you didn't have. Could you talk a little bit more about Maharaji and this theme of inspiration? Well, there's the story of how I met him, and it's a, it's a long story. I don't think right now is maybe the time to go into this 20-minute story right. of me finally getting there after great struggling and, and disappointment and frustration. And when I finally met him, I saw him across the courtyard, and I came running over to him, and he, he seemed excited to see me, which kind of shocked me. And I was certainly excited to see him, and it felt like the feeling was like two five-year-olds who were best friends, and I'd been off at summer camp for two weeks, and we'd really missed each other, and there we were again. And we were, we were, we were going to get to play again. It's like, oh, how great this is. And in that moment, for the first time in my life, I felt that I was at home. In a way, that one moment was everything. But then life from that point onward was bringing that into manifestation, bringing into fruition the awakeness that his presence so clearly radiated. You ask, is it his presence or things that he did or things that he said? I really honestly can't separate those. Sure. Uh, of the people who were there, I was maybe less attached to the physical form than some of the other people. It, to me, it was more an inner meditative kind of thing, but I can't, I, I can certainly say that probably I've never loved anything so much in the physical plane as being with him. Mm. But there was one time, for instance, where we were with Maharaji and Brindavan, and in India they often have big walls around the temples because there are uh, precious things on the statues, and monkeys can come and take them, or poor people can come and take them who are hungry or whatever. So there's a big wall around the temple, and Maharaji jowed us. He said, everybody, you should go away and not come back for for." two or three days. He had said that, much to our shock, he said attachment happens both ways. And when, I'm too, when you, I spend too much time with you, I start getting attached to you, so you guys have to leave for a while. So we dutifully went back to this hostel that most of us were staying at. But there was one devotee, Krishna Priya, who decided that she loved Maharaji so much that he couldn't say no to her. So she started crawling over the wall to get into the temple to be with him. And he saw her coming over the wall, and he yelled to the, the, the guy who was the guardian at the gate, get her out of here. And he turned to somebody and said, they don't understand, they think I'm this body. Mm. So my sense is that those of us who had to go to India to be with Maharaji were the people who were the most difficult cases. And that those of us, those of you, those of us who met Maharaji but didn't meet him in his body, maybe you didn't need to drag your butt all the way over to India. Uh, Joseph Goldstein, a very wonderful American Vipassana teacher, uh, once said about Maharaji, he must have been really an incredible teacher because he has all the most difficult cases. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is probably true. So, uh, in a way, what Maharaji did, what he said, and who he was were of one cloth. And basically, he was not a teacher. He was a guru. He was, And in, at the same time, he was a very approachable, ordinary guy, although he was everything as well as ordinary. So his main teachings were, remember God. He said, uh, the only important thing is how much you love God. 
how much you remember God. And then serve people and, and love people. Uh, the Living Dying Project used to be part of the Hanuman Foundation, a nonprofit service-oriented foundation that Ramdas started and that I was the director of for a while. Hanuman is the aspect of Hindu divinity that is an expression of devotion through selfless service. Krishna is more romantic, uh, erotic love, and Ram is uh, the perfect husband and servant and king. Hanuman is the servant. So, uh, and many people feel that Maharaji was either a great devotee of Hanuman or even that he was an incarnation of Hanuman, which is a whole other podcast that we can get into all those Maharaji Hanuman stories. So, I'm, in fact, one of the devotees, Dwarka, a dear friend of mine, when we were with Maharaji, he spent most of his time in the kitchen cooking food for people instead of trying to be with Maharaji. Almost all of us were fighting to get up close mm. to Maharaji and touch his feet and get a name and get the fruit that he was passing out, the prasad. And Dwarka was just content to be back in the kitchen serving. And Maharaji made it very clear that the Dwarka was the one who got it, that he was the one who uh, had the, the connection. Not that we didn't, but that that is also a very valid way to come to God. Love, serve, remember are the three. Or love, uh, love God. Serve people, love people? Are those the three? Remember God. Remember God. Love people, serve people. So what does it mean to you to remember God? Um, what do you, in your daily life, how do you relate to that term? Maharaji also said, somebody asked them, Maharaji, what is the best form in which to worship God? In India, there's all kinds of deities. And he said, the best form to worship God is every form. And I don't think he just meant Ram and Krishna and Sita and Shiva and Durga and Hanuman, but he meant you. And he meant Donald Trump. And he meant the neighbor who you're having a hard time with. And he meant uh, the homeless guy on the sidewalk. So that, in a way, remembering God, partly it's meditating and saying mantras and deepening my concentration and opening my heart, but it's not just something that happens in front of the altar. It's not something that just happens in the meditation room. It's how much can that connectedness, that juiciness, actually be brought into my daily life. Let me tell you another story. I think this is on one of the other podcasts, but I can't remember. There is another devotee named Mohan and I who were with Maharaji, with a bunch of Indian devotees. They were talking in Hindi, and Maharaji turned to us and said, how much do you pay for milk in America? How much does milk cost? Mohan did a quick calculation in his head, and he said, Maharaji, it's X rupees per kilo. And Maharaji feigned shocked, and he turned to the Indians and said, can you believe how much they pay for milk? He went on and on. He was talking in, to these people on and on and on for the longest time, and I started getting kind of bored. And then he turned back and said, how much was it again? And Mohan told him, and back he went, and they were talking about milk and whatever. Uh, and I'm thinking, you know, maybe I'm in the wrong place. You know, i I just gotten there. I... I had this experience, but I was still trying to figure out what it all meant. And I thought, maybe this guy isn't quite who Ramdas thinks he is. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should go where there's a guru who talks about God instead of milk. 
And all of a sudden, I had this explosion in my mind that I know came from him. I can't tell you how I know that. But this, this epiphany happened, and what, what came to my mind was, we can talk about God, we can talk about important things, but that just makes the mind busy. If we're talking about the price of milk, something that really has very little meaning, mm. it frees the mind to just float in the ocean of love. And at that point, I went to ecstasy. I went wow. into ecstasy for the rest of the day. I could barely relate to people. And that Maharaji had given me this lesson, which he would do again and again. He'd be talking to another person, and somehow something came into you, a word or a phrase, that you knew that he knew what you were thinking about or what you were going through. Wow. And as a uh, physicist in training and somebody who's capable of trying to use or maybe has an inclination towards using logic from your upbringing, did you ever think about how he did that? I mean, I, I know it's probably your experience of that is less is, is more important than the method, but uh, do you, I'm just curious about how, do you have any sense or any desire to know about? I have a sense, but first of all, I'm not a physicist. Big mistake. Oh, mathemat mathemat oh, mathematician. Yeah, mathematician. Sorry. Why do I think? I'm sorry. Yeah. That's okay. Uh, so we make a mistake. We think that I am this body and personality, and there is an objective reality out there, and that my consciousness is perceiving a solid reality, and there's a solid me using my sense organs and my mind to interact with this outer solid reality. And quantum physics and ancient tantric Hinduism and Buddhism say that, that is, uh, that's having it kind of backwards, that we are consciousness, that it's all consciousness, that our perception of time and space is really an illusion, and if Maharaji is not sitting there identified with, I'm this guy in the blanket sitting here at a particular time in a particular place, then he then past and future here and there don't have the same meaning to him that they have to you. So let me just tell you one story. Maharaji went to the barber. And what that means is he was wandering in some small village and there's a guy squatting on the side of the road, sitting on a little blanket with a kerosene heater heating up some water, and he's got some soap and a razor. So you squat down next to the guy, and he'll give you a shave and or a haircut. So Maharaji was getting a shave and a haircut. And as he was doing this, he was drawing the barber out, and the barber was saying, oh, my life, my life is so, so bad. My only son and I have lost touch with each other. I don't know where he is. And in India, there's no social security. Mm. Your social security is your kids. So here's this old guy, and somehow through some circumstances that I don't really remember, his son had gone somewhere and then had moved, and they really lost track of each other. And the man was very sad. So Maharaji said, excuse me, hang on, i got to go behind the building and take a pee, I'll be right back. So he goes behind the building, he comes back in a few minutes, gets the rest of his shave, haircut, and he leaves. Next day, the guy's son shows up. Mm. The father is like overjoyed and says, how did you know where I am? He said, well, yesterday afternoon, at the time when Maharaj was getting a haircut, I was in my shop 200 kilometers away, and this guy came in, he was half-shaved, Half of his face was shaved, and his, his hair was partly cut. And he said, your father needs you. And he's in such and such a village, you must go to him immediately. Hmm. And he described the guy as Maharaji. So, and there were, there's so many stories that Maharaji knew about what had happened in my past, or Ram Dass's past, or other people's past, or 
could tell us what was going to happen in the future because he was not identified as you and I are most of the time of here's Dale and Chris and it's Monday morning and it's uh, 1055 and it's Fairfax, California. And have you been in meditative states where there is no time and space? I have. So suppose you, suppose you stayed there. Wow. <laughs> now, we don't stay there because that place will resonate fear of death because there's not a solid Chris there anymore. Mm. What's there is consciousness. What's there is love. What's there is spaciousness, emptiness. But through practice, through devotion, through service, through different ways, one can get used to being in that place and apparently my deepest understanding and feeling, that's where Maharaji was. So he could do what seemed like miracles because he wasn't identified with that, with uh, physical time-space reality in the way that most of us are. The book that Ramdas put together of Maharaji stories is called Miracle of Love. And the meaning behind the title is there are all these other miracles that Maharaji knew the past and he knew the future. And he could be in two places at the same time. There's all kinds of stories where he was in two places, like the story about the barber. Uh, but the real, the real miracle was the miracle of love. Mm -hmm. The miracle of love. The miracle of love. We use the word love. David Bowie says, love such an old-fashioned word, and love, love, love is a, the word itself, and then there's the experience of it, or I'm riffing on the idea of love. Why is love a, what's the, what is the miracle of love? Is it that it exists? Is it that it transforms? What, how do you relate to that phrase, miracle of love? Well, I've loved and have been loved by many people, and Mostly that love is conditional. I have met a few remarkable people who seem to love me no matter how I behave. Uh, I can be neurotic. I can be uh, paying lack of attention, if you will, and I'm still loved. But usually human love is a very conditional thing. Yeah. And if, if we think about romantic love, it starts out in a certain way. And almost always it fades. In fact, in Buddhism, these wholesome qualities like loving kindness and compassion, equanimity, joy, have a far enemy and a near enemy. The far enemy is the opposite thing. So the opposite of love is hatred, for instance. But the near enemy is something that looks a lot like the wholesome quality, but is actually still an enemy. And it's the quality that gets us in trouble. So what would you guess is the near enemy of love. It looks like love, it smells like love, it quacks like love, but it's not love. S sympathy. Uh, being friendly when you don't feel friendly. Um, putting, let, up a putting up a mask. Am I close? Let me save you. The near enemy of love is attachment. Attachment where you're loving somebody because you want something. Ah. There's, some, there's some grasping. I'm loving you because I don't want to be alone, because uh, I want people to think that I have a partner, because I want to have a sexual partner, because uh, I'm somebody who maybe could have a happier life if I had somebody next to me supporting me. Wow. Okay? And so... I'll love, you, I'll love you five if you love me five. Yes. But if you love me four, I'm only going to love you three. Right. And that's, that's what David Bowie and Chris were talking about with love. The miracle of love is I'm loving you infinity, no matter how you're behaving or what you're doing. Mm. That's the miracle. Wow. What a smile on your face. I, I feel like... My experience of us right now is I'm tuning into my body and tuning into this sense and thinking about when I'm not in this sense and not in th this feeling. Because it's, it's like it's always, 
I've had experiences where the mind clouds and contracts my consciousness and uh, so I don't know if I'm feeling love or, or attachment right now. <laughs> what do you think it is? I think it's probably a lot of love. Maybe some little little sliver of attachment there. But, you know, there's, there's no reason to try to understand it or to separate it or to figure it out maybe. Can, can we just keep dying into love, surrendering into love, radical surrender into love? Right. So we started out talking about inspiration and we got as far as Ramdas brought me to Maharaji and that's kind of now we're into... Right. The inspiration of Maharaji. But how about, how about inspiration in daily life? Yes. How about inspiration? Maharaji died 45 years ago. He left his body. His, his presence still is felt by many people, maybe as much as when he was in his body. But uh, devotion to the Guru is, or devotion to God, is really not everyone's path. And so, so suppose that's not your path. Right. Uh, how does one find inspiration in a life where the guru hasn't come and bopped you on the head and say, you're mine? Right. You have any ideas about that? For me, I do. So embodiment is something that's been on my mind. How do I feel more in the body? How do I feel not one step away from the food that I'm eating? How do I enjoy this moment? And I know there have been periods in my life where I have felt very, and I'm using the words that you've given me a vocabulary for, but I've heard before that too, around grounding and centering. And I feel like if I have my feet on the ground and a part of my heart or mind connected to the sky. I can be, I can play out this role of Chris Britt as fully as I'm supposed to play it out. But I feel like there's an element of me that needs to be here in the body, but somehow connected, somehow not identified with the body. Can you help me articulate that or, or, or what are your thoughts around that formulation? Well, certainly embodiment is an important first step for many people. We live in a society, in a culture of accumulation, of speed, of uh, people moving fast. And when you said that something about living outside of your body, it reminds me of James Joyce Ulysses, Mr. I forget the guy's name, lived six feet from his body all his life or oh, something yeah. like that. Great quote. Mr. Bloom, I guess his name was. And deeper spiritual practice, even intermediate stages of practice, uh, dissolving into love, receiving the miracle of love, uh, going into the, the spacious mind of Buddhism, going into the vast heart of devotion, without a foundation of being grounded and centered, is going to be a very difficult, sporadic, and confusing process. And in fact, in terms of stages of childhood development. And once again, this is a whole other long talk that we're not going to go into in too much depth right now. But second trimester to two years old, little Chris learns to be grounded, to trust that he is supported and nourished. And the demon of that stage is fear, being afraid. Mm. And even if you've had loving parents, there were probably experiences you had early in your life where there was some anxiety. Ages one and a half to five, these are all approximate, being centered, being going from dependent and grounded to being independent and autonomous, uh, the place from which martial arts are done. Mm. And 
the demon there is guilt and shame. I'm an independent person, but can I really do that? Should I really do that? Should I really be able to manifest my power? Is that going to get me in trouble? Because you think of the little child trying to be autonomous and he's making noise or throwing food around and mom and dad don't like that so much. Right. Okay. So then from ages five to eight or so, a, a child starts to learn about conscious relationship and going into the heart, having appropriate boundaries. But if you haven't learned about the grounding, if you haven't learned about the centering, there isn't a foundation from which to trust that you can dissolve mm. into the infinite spaciousness of the heart. So I'll bet you know, and I'll bet you are, and I'll bet I am a person who at times is really open-hearted and kind and loving, and then somebody looks at you in a strange way, and all of a sudden your heart closes and you judge them, and you think, well, how can they be like that when I'm loving them so much or something, right? Yeah, right. And that we, we often need the environment to be supportive for us to trust that we can keep our heart open. Mm. And that even goes back to our, <clears throat> our previous discussion about infatuation. In the beginning, it's really easy to keep your heart open. <laughs> you see the place where the other person's loving you and you're loving them, you get to know them better. And some of the personality traits begin to become a little bit bothersome in you, in them, and friction arises and becomes much, much harder to rest in love because the places where you're not grounded and centered are being threatened mm. by the places in this other person where they're not being supportive and open to you. Mm. So what I'm saying here is that yeah, we can talk about devotion and surrendering to Maharaji, or we can even talk about quantum mechanics or pure consciousness, pure awareness, and that we are all consciousness. It's all consciousness. There's no objective reality in a certain way. But all these are great ideas that are almost impossible to put into embodiment in any kind of ongoing way until we have this, these earlier stages uh, fairly manifested and healed so that uh, it's never too late to have a good childhood, right. as they say. You, you told me about a book called The Drama of the Gifted Child. Uh-huh. And I read enough that I feel like I... I and it led me way on to way. Uh, and it was a very helpful book to me because it talks about... Uh, how certain achievement-oriented people relate to, this is how, what I got from it, relate to their childhood and, and some of the defense mechanisms around that personality or experience structure. Mm -hmm. And so that was very helpful to me. So thank you for that book. So what is it that inspires you yeah. to work with those difficult childhood wounds to go beyond them? Mm. Well, I have to say, I've known something has been wrong or have felt something has been wrong for a long time, but for 10 years I didn't go toward those. <laughs> my personality and my years in therapy, I said, no, I had a child. It has to be something else because I did have a happy childhood. I wasn't abused. I don't remember verbal abuse, all of this. So, actually, so, so the, I wanted to say that first because I thought that um, that wasn't the issue. <laughs> I did everything I could to talk around that and nobody asked me about that in therapy or dug deep or helped me go toward that for 10 years. Like that's just, and yet the greatest healing I've had has been recently around feeling how I really feel about those things and getting close. So I don't know if I, did I answer your question or why did I want to go close to that? I actually avoided it for most of my adult life until I had some experiences that really rang my bell and tuned me in and I got to a place where I could get close 
to those memories and those feelings. But now, um, more and more, I feel I feel like I've touched those places. So in India, there's the notion of the the satguru, the satguru and the upaguru. The satguru is the one person, but the upaguru are the people that you keep meeting, who inspire you to wake up. You're one of them. And uh, we all have many of those, or maybe not we all, but many of us have many of those. And until you're done, it's useful to keep your eye out for the next inspiration. Uh, Mayor Baba said, love is contagious. Those who haven't got it, catch it from those who do. Mm. And any wisdom that I have or any love that shines through me is really me channeling my teachers and their teachers and their teachers' teachers, that there's this lineage of wisdom and love and compassion that goes back into prehistory and is coming down through all of us. I found a photo of Neem Karoli Baba right at a time when I had a a spiritual opening that lasted several months of feeling grounded, feeling centered, feeling like there was more space between thoughts. And it wasn't an unlikely place to find a photo of Maharaji, but it has since been before and after seemingly unlikely that I would have found a photo of him there. And I had been trying to bring into my practice during that time that cultivated or brought me toward this spacious um, place or this altered consciousness. And I was serving my friend who was sick. I was, um, he was very sick and I was trying to see him as God or I was doing things that I had to do for him that didn't feel comfortable. I was changing his catheter three times a day. Um, I had, so there was that. I felt like I was serving my friend and then I felt like at the same time I had this uncommon feeling of um, of, uh, of surrender, kind of the prayer of St. Francis came to my mind, like, you know, I've tried everything, use me as an instrument, God, and that was my prayer that I was keeping in mind those days. And then also, um, I was getting some energetic work done on my stomach, some chi san. And that and a few other things I felt triggered this period of um, a different me. So in your life, how do you, do you, your practice beyond going to, I know you, you have a daily meditation practice, is that beyond your um, returning to the mat or returning to the to the kneeler or to meditate or what are some things that you do to stay connected along the lines of either what you learned through Maharaji or your own practices? Can you share a little bit about your embodiment or your tuning into to inspiration or that place of um, of love? Could you tell me a little bit more about your day-to-day, less? Well, I try to do things <clears throat> that, let me start over. The Dalai Lama has this great quote. If you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. So I try to be doing things on a regular basis where I'm not so much thinking about myself, but how can I serve? How can I, how can I bring wholeness, healing to the people around me? I feel like I've had such great blessings in my life. I've had the blessing of being around some of the greatest teachers and meditation masters of 
the second part of the 20th century. And uh, I've had a life where I haven't had to have a regular job since I was in graduate school. I've been a yogi for a long time in my life. So I've, I've had the chance to really accumulate teachings, to try to embody them, and now to try to bring that back into the world. So when I, when I go to bed at night, rather than thinking about, oh, what happened during the day, or what's going to happen tomorrow, or maybe even should I be grateful for things that I have, think about the people that I know and send love and compassion to the people in my groups, the people I know who are sick, the people in my family, the people who I've met, and just going out of my, outside of this identification where there's this Dale who's on this big self-improvement project, Mm-hmm. And remember that I'm Ramdev, that uh, I'm I am Ram's Lord. I am Shiva incarnate in a certain way, and that doesn't mean that, that that that's an egocentric thing. It doesn't mean that look I'm I'm better than somebody else. But it means that it's a uh, there's this constant movement toward. letting the love flow through me into the people around me and not pulling back from the suffering that I see. And it's hard. There are certain kinds of personality types that just drive me crazy. (laughs) And we're living in a political climate now that there's a great deal of anger and suffering. It's very easy to pull back and become self-righteous. And and, uh, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, everybody's mad at the person on the other side of the aisle or even on the other side of the the dining room table in certain cases. So to me, that's the main thing. Mother Teresa talked about when she would take a, pick a a leper out of the gutter in Calcutta. She would say, I see Christ in his distressing disguise. So before I said Maharaj, she says the best form to worship God is every form. So there you are, Maharaji. We've been doing a pot. How lucky am I to be able to do a podcast with Maharaji this morning? Right? Isn't it here we, wonderful? Here we are. You've got the same belly that he had. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say about that. He wasn't too... I've seen photos of Maharaji, and I thought, you know, I, I, I projected my own belly onto him. I, I was thinking, well, geez, if he really loves, if he's really enlightened, wouldn't he treat his, his physical form with a little bit more uh, care? I, I Really, that's a question that, that I thought about, you know, and that... You mean that he was overweight? Yeah, and that, um, I guess he didn't have attachment to being overweight, but he was, he had to have some sense that maybe he could have more impact, or, or if he, no, I don't know, that's a little unfair, I'm laying a lot on here, but but isn't it funny, the Buddha, they say, I don't want to, uh, the joke about learning self-control or um, <laughs> or mindfulness from a from a very heavy person, I mean, that's my own dialectic, but... Well, first of all, Maharaji was not teaching mindfulness. He was teaching love. Love, okay. And second of all, there are many stories where when he was younger, he'd go from village to village and eat all the food that was offered to him. And it seemed that it was his way of consuming karma. Hmm. That people, that he was eating not because he was hungry, but because it was offered with love. And when he was older, when I was there, it didn't seem like he ate very much at all. But, I mean, he would eat off in private, but it it didn't seem like he did things for his own enjoyment or his own need. So I I, I don't think he was planning to join Weight Watchers at any time soon. And that, that it was not, his weight was not a sign that he had not taken care of himself. Okay. So like he had done things supposedly where he had stood on a lake for a year or two doing practice. And there were times when he ate only food that people gave to him. He didn't even ask. Uh, He would just, he would only eat what was offered to him Mm. for a long period of time. And there was another time where his name was Tutwala Baba, which meant broken pot baba essentially where the the only item 
his only possession was a broken terracotta pot that he used for water and eating and things. Wow. So it's not like he was attached to stuff in that way. Fair. Thank you for explaining that. It's, of course, the things that I, any things I bump up against uh, in reading stories of him are really my, <laughs> the things I bump up against in myself. It's like uh, when you were talking this political time, mindful, or I don't know if the word's mindfulness in this, the news stories that come up and you feel, uh, I feel sometimes rage or anger and uh, it's clearly a mirror. It's clearly pressing the button in me where I have rage and anger. Now this is not an this is not a um, argument for uh, copping out personally in terms of respons responsibility we feel to the subject matter of suffering with other people. But there is something very interesting I feel in myself and I see in other people. The mirror that Donald Trump is, for example, Donald Trump probably opened up individual experiences in people of fear and rage and ugly parts of ourselves that we have never fully felt and and we think it's him but it's really it in it maybe it is him but it's also in us and where the rubber hits the road for me is where it's in me and not necessarily dissolving those feelings but um i'm looking always to relate to them differently because i can see the pattern i mean it's almost too predictable for myself and for others it, the that human game of of anger is i don't you know it, it's a it's a losing game it's it's a it's a game that i don't want to play in the same way for the right. rest so of my to life to me to me it's really coming back to what inspires and yeah the world like that story about the price of milk Yes. You know, we can we can get caught up in we can get caught up in all the worldly stuff. And there was a time when the president of India came to see Maharaji and we were there and he had a whole entourage of people. He was a devotee. Not the prime minister, but the president. Not not the, the big cheese, but one or two steps down. And he made a big fuss about here I am and here's these offerings for you. And as he and his entourage were driving up the valley road, winding up out of the valley, up the side of the Himalayan hillside there, Maharaji turned to somebody and said, all that fuss and he's only a worldly king. Hmm. So it's good to be alert politically and be engaged if that's what you choose to do. But can we remember that all this is contextualized in something that is deeply inspirational and true right. and vast and wonderful? And I think this is a fantastic time to end this podcast. I've really enjoyed being with you. Thank you, Dale. I've, this is such a gift. Dale, before you go, uh, for our listeners, you've spoken a little bit about the programs you've done um, and continue to do. Can you talk a little bit about your website, your podcast, anything else you'd like people who are interested in Dale Borglum or what we've talked about to explore? Thank you. I'm the director of the Living Dying Project, and we're based here in Marin County, California. The website is livingdying.org. It's the most complete site on the internet with information about conscious dying. Uh, we're supported by donations, and it turns out that offering free spiritual support to dying people is not the world's greatest business model. <laughs> <laughs> So there's that, but it is the most rewarding work. And in fact, my humble opinion is that in, in these trying times, the best spiritual practice for this day and age is a deep inner contemplative practice combined with some outer intimate relationship with death and dying. Mm -hmm. So once again, thank you. Come thank to you. my website, and I hope your new podcast, Chris, is very successful. Thank you, Dale. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.